Let's pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you've given us your word, the Bible. We pray that as we look now at this very challenging and practical passage, that you will help us to put it into practice in our lives as we seek, in view of your mercy, to offer our lives to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune reported the story of a woman in New Mexico. She was frying some tortillas and she noticed that the skillet burns on one of her tortillas resembled the face of Jesus. Her husband and family agreed. It was some kind of a miracle. So she went and got a priest to bless the tortilla. She took it home. She put it in a glass case with piles of cotton to make it look like it was floating on clouds. She built a shrine. She opened it to visitors. Within a few months, more than 8,000 people came to worship at the shrine of the Jesus of the Tortilla. All of them agreed that the face in the Tortilla was the very face of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Except for one reporter who said he thought it looked more like former heavyweight boxing champion Leon Spinks. <clears throat> you laugh. I'm glad you did. <clears throat> and it does seem incredible that people could worship Jesus in a tortilla, doesn't it? Only in America, you might say. Except, of course, there were those thousands of people in Sydney a couple of years ago who worshipped a fence post because at a certain time of day they thought it looked like the Virgin Mary. Most people want to worship it's ingrained in us. We're aware that there is a God who's greater than us. We know we ought to worship this God, but most people have got no idea what kind of worship God requires. It's even true of Christians. Most Christians seem to, to vaguely think of worship as some kind of a, a mood. It's the mood you get when you sit in a, 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 a beautiful building with stained glass windows and an organ. Or, or maybe it's the mood that you get when you sing songs over and over and over again. Christians suspect worship is some kind of a mood or a vibe. But most Christians would find it hard to explain to you what it is exactly that God wants from us in worship. And so what a blessing it is that we've got Romans chapters 12 to 15. Because in Romans chapters 12 to 15, God tells us the kind of worship he does want. We don't have to be in the dark about the worship God wants. Here in Romans 12 to 15, he tells us exactly what he wants in worship. We saw the principles very clearly last week, didn't we? First, we saw that true worship comes as a response to God's mercy. God has had mercy upon us, on sinners like you and me. He gave Jesus to die for us so we can be forgiven. Now, when we trust in Jesus as a free gift of God's mercy, we are forgiven. We're given eternal life. There's the starting point for worship. If you're, if you're not worshipping God for his mercy to you in Jesus, you're not even in the right playing field. You haven't even got to the starting blocks. You may as well be worshipping a tortilla. True worship comes as a response to the mercy of God in Jesus. Second, we saw that true worship means we offer our whole lives to God. That's how we respond to his mercy. 
Worship is not about certain holy times or places or activities. God wants us to love and obey him in every place, all the time, in every activity. And that means we need to stop thinking like the people of this rebellious, sinful world around us. We need to have our minds renewed by the message of Jesus. And then we need to let that transform us so that we start to test and approve God's will. So we start to know and want what God wants. And then once we want what God wants, we then do it. We offer our whole lives to him. Let me read to you again from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. Romans 12 verse 1 sets, sets up the whole of chapters 12 to 15. Romans 12 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, your true act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. That's true worship. That's the worship God wants. We respond to his mercy in Jesus by living our whole lives for him. And now in the next part of Romans 12, we're getting practical. In verses 3 to 8, we saw that worshipping means using our gifts to serve each other. And here in the rest of Romans 12, we get more of the same. We've got a list of practical examples of the kind of worship that God wants. So let's look together. This part's not hard to understand. This part's all about application. Verses 9 to 16 talks about how we should relate to each other as Christians. The first command is about love. And the point is, we mustn't love hypocritically. We mustn't love with ulterior motives. We need to love genuinely. Romans 12 and verse 9, love must be sincere. It's easy to be insincere, isn't it? It's easy to try to look loving so that other people will be impressed. It's easy to put on a facade of love so that people will think what good Christians we are. We've all experienced the car park miracle, haven't we? When we're, we're fighting with each other until we get to the car park of church and then suddenly a miracle. We're all very loving. It's harder to love with sincerity. It's harder to love because you actually value people. But think about God's love to us. God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because he had something to gain from us. We were helpless. We couldn't do anything. God loved us genuinely. And so it's not right for us to, to accept that kind of love from God, but then to offer phony love to each other. That's not an appropriate response to God's mercy. And so we need to stop pretending. We need to stop with any Sunday facade. We need to get real with each other. Take the time to actually care. I know you're busy. I know you've got enough problems of your own. But that's the kind of worship that God's mercy demands. Sincere love. The next command is there in verse 9 again. We're told to hate evil things and cling to the stuff that's pleasing to God. They're halfway through verse 9. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Well, how's your worship life going there? Are there evil things that, that fascinate you, 
that you play with, that you long for? Are you wallowing in anger and bitterness? Is it some illicit relationship or or pornography or some financial scam? I reckon our biggest problem here is the TV. So much of what is on TV is just plain evil. It's immoral, it's godless. And yet we let it into our homes and let it into our lives and we watch it and we dwell on it and we get pulled in by it. So how do we hate what is evil and cling to what is good? Again, the key is God's mercy, isn't it? Jesus died for us to set us free from evil. That's the key. Jesus died to set us free from evil. We don't want to go back and wallow in the evil that we've been that Jesus died to set us free from. We need to let God's mercy transform our minds so that we want what he wants. And then we need to do whatever it takes. We need to do what it takes to remove evil from our lives. Chuck the TV in the bin, if that's what it takes. Or at least switch it off at 9.30. Get rid of the internet, if that's what it takes. I know it's inconvenient. But your godliness is more important than your convenience. We need to remove the things that lead us to evil. Instead, we need to cling to what is good. Get hold of a Christian book and read it. Regularly read the Bible. Encourage other Christians. Spend time. You want to worship God's way? Forget the tortillas. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 10 comes back to love. We're to work hard at loving each other deeply. It doesn't mean with a deep voice. Verse 10, be devoted to one another. The NIV puts it, in brotherly love. Again, that's not easy, is it? And I know, I mean, seriously, there is no way that you can be devoted to everybody, even in a small church like this. So how do you deal with it? We start with God's mercy. You remember that God has devoted himself to us. You remember that it's not right to accept God's devotion and mercy, but then be indifferent and uncaring to his people. And then you just get on and deal with people one at a time. It's like that journey of a thousand miles. You take it one step at a time. One person at a time, you devote yourself to brotherly love. Verse 10 again, we're called to treat each other with respect. You don't don't put other Christians down to make you feel good. You you honour them, verse 10. Honour one another above yourselves. Verse 11 is another great challenge. It's about keeping up our enthusiasm as Christians. Verse 11. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. You know, there's something I've noticed in ministry. No matter what point of life you are at, there is always a good reason to keep your Christianity on the back burner. There's always a good reason to let your Christian life take second place. You go to school and you can't get to youth group for months because of exams. Same at uni. You go out, get yourself a job, you need to establish yourself. You need to work long hours and so church is going to have to wait. Then you get married, have children. And by the time you fit in work and the kids and everything else, again, Christian stuff's going to have to wait till later. 
But then it doesn't get easier as the kids grow up. The women all go back to work to pay the mortgage and the men's jobs don't get easier. Now those young guds who are working hard to establish themselves, they're, they're showing you up. You can't afford to get retrenched at your age, so you keep on working the long hours. There's still no time to devote to Christian stuff. Eventually you retire, and then people seem to think they've earned a rest. You know, church will fit in after, after the round Australia trip, or maybe occasionally if the weather's no good for golf. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, there's always a good excuse to just cruise along as a Christian. But God hasn't just cruised along with us, has he? God gave his son to die for us. You can't really understand that kind of mercy and then be lukewarm. You can't really understand what it is to be an heir of eternal glory and then devote your life to the here and now. You just you haven't really understood God's mercy. That's not the sort of worship that God's mercy demands. It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, God's mercy demands a bit of enthusiasm, a bit of fire in the belly. And it's always so encouraging to see people who are like that, isn't it? It doesn't matter if they've got 16 kids and a mortgage of 10 million bucks, they'll still be working hard. They'll still be devoting themselves to the Lord. They'll still make an effort to get along to things. They manage to keep the fire burning. Verse 12 talks about how to handle the tough times. Again, it's all about living in the light of God's mercy. When we face tough times, we need to let the hope of heaven fill us with joy. We need to be patient. We need to keep on praying. Verse 12 be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The next one's about being generous with other Christians. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Is that you? Are you generous to other Christians, to needy Christians? God's been so generous to us, hasn't he? It's only right that we should be generous to his people, and I know many people here are. But there are plenty of Christians out there who are suffering, aren't there? I know we can't help them all, but we need to do what we can with what we've got generously. What about hospitality? The next part of verse 13. Practice hospitality. Now, don't take care of this, all this seriously, what I'm about to say, but when it says practice hospitality, the word practice there is actually the same word as persecute, to pursue, or something like that. I reckon it's a nice image. Don't overdo this, but, but we're to persecute hospitality. You know, we're to persecute people with our hospitality, chase them around with a cup of tea, invite them over until they're sick of it. <coughs> Are you hospitable? Were you one of the people who hosted students when we had our mission here? Have you had your children's kids church, kids church teacher home for lunch to thank them? Have you ever had anyone from church over? Have you ever offered them a cup of tea or a drink of water? Remember, that is the sort of worship that God wants. Smash the stained glass window. Practice hospitality. Verse 14 talks about how to respond to the people who hurt you. 
those people in church who criticise you and talk about you behind your back. How should you deal with Christians who persecute you? Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The next bit again is about caring for each other, getting involved in each other's lives, sharing in the good times, sharing in the bad times. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. At, uh, at my first church, people were really good at this. If there was a wedding, pretty much the whole church would show up. I remember at our wedding, it only took 180 people in the building, but everyone from church came and there were 250 people squeezed in. If there was a funeral, again, everyone would be there. They wanted to be involved in each other's lives at that kind of level. It doesn't seem to be the culture here so much. It's a bit sad, I reckon something we should think about. Again, it all comes back to God's mercy. God hasn't been indifferent to us. God hasn't kept his distance from us. God has mercifully got involved in our lives and now we need to respond to his mercy by getting involved in each other's lives, by, by showing empathy and care. That is the worship that God wants. The last commands there are against social climbing in church. You know how it works. You see it at work all the time or at, at, at a club or something. People look out for the popular people. They look out for the powerful people, the influential people, and they, they try to ingratiate themselves with them. Church isn't the place for games like that. At church, we're here on the same basis. We are sinners saved by God's mercy. No room for cliques here. We shouldn't just hang out with the cool people or the people who are like us. We need to be willing to associate all with each other, despite our different races, despite our different social positions. We mustn't be proud or conceited. We mustn't use social, relationship, social relationships for our own gain. We need to relate together as people under the mercy of God, as equals. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Well, there it is. There's the picture of a worshipping church. There's the picture of a church of people responding to the mercy of God. There's the picture of a church of people not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of their minds. There's a picture of a church who know and love what God wants. Here is, here is the Bible's picture of a worshipping church. Notice, no tortillas. No fence posts, not even any holy buildings or organs or stained glass windows, not even any rock bands or singing repetitively. So how are we going? How do we compare here at Chatswood Presbyterian? Are we a church that worships God's way? I reckon there are lots of good things happening in our church. There are lots of faithful people here who serve God and serve his people with zeal and with love. There are lots of people who show empathy and care. There are lots of people who are able, even with all the troubles in their life, to be able to care. I don't want to embarrass anyone by naming names, but there is real evidence of the work of God's Holy Spirit in this church as people share each other's lives. But 
Chatswood Presbyterian isn't quite heaven yet, is it? Our church is conformed to the world in many ways. But most particularly, as I, as I look at this passage, I think it really shows up our conformity to Western individualism. We are very much still a group of individuals. And for many of us, our lives barely intersect. For many people here, the full extent of our fellowship is that we happen to sit together in the same building for an hour or so each week, or each couple of weeks. We don't actually know each other at all. We still have to squint to look on the name tags, let alone sincerely love each other, care for each other, weep with each other. We keep our distance. Hello, Patrick. So is that you? Are you holding back from your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you staying detached? It's not the picture of Romans 12, is it? It's not the way a person who knows God's mercy should live. It's not the way God wants us to worship. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? There's nothing hard to understand about this passage, is it? It's just God's straight-out commands. Here's what I want from you. So, so what are you going to do? Are you going to, are you going to disobey God here and stay detached? Is that your plan? Are you going to ignore what God says and stay conformed to the world? Are you going to say to God, no, I refuse to worship you your way? Or are you going to change? Get involved. Start taking an interest in the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are you going to start loving them and laughing with them and crying with them and helping them and offering them hospitality? Why not take a baby step this week? Just baby step. Get out your church directory. Give someone a call. Maybe, uh, maybe call one of the people you've prayed for that day from the prayer diary. Give them a call. Ask them how they're going. Tell them you prayed for them. I know you're busy. I know you're tired. I know you're too old or too young or too in between. I know the circumstances of your family make it hard. I know you've got a tough job. I know your health is not that good. But frankly, we've all got our excuses. I'm just not convinced that there is any excuse that's good enough to disobey God with. Okay, we're nearly out of time. We need to just quickly look at this second section, though. Verses 17 to 21 focus on our relationships with people outside the church, our relationships with non-Christians. Now, the first command is about responding to evil there in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Now, the second command assumes that the world is watching us. They're watching how we live, maybe to accuse us, or maybe just to check out if there's anything to this Christianity thing. They're looking at you and at me. And so it's not good enough for us to say, who cares what anyone else thinks? The fact is, we are ambassadors of Christ in this world. What we do reflects directly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we not only need to do what is right, we need to be seen to do what is right. Verse 17 again. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Verse 18 is about living at peace. Obviously, not everyone in this world is going to like you. It's not going to be possible to be at peace with everyone. But, but don't let the war be coming from your side. You do whatever you can to live at peace. You, you be ready to forgive. You be ready to hold out the olive branch. Verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. The next bit's about not taking revenge. God is the judge. He'll sort it all out in the end. So you don't have to put every wrong right here in this world. Verse 19. Don't take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written in Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, now from Proverbs, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Which I don't think means you'll singe him. I think it means you'll shame him. Um, as you keep doing good to someone who's doing evil, you'll hopefully shame them into a better course of action. Paul summarises verse 21. When it comes to this world, we need to overcome evil with good. We mustn't let, mustn't let the world push us into ungodliness. Instead, we need to let our godliness push out and, and commend the gospel to the world. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, there it is. There's the worshipping Christian in the world. They stand out, don't they? They stand out as a person who strives to live righteously. They stand out as a person who strives to live at peace. They stand out because they know the mercy of God. They're transformed by the mercy of God. Well, it's no wonder people want to worship a tortilla or a fence post. It's no wonder people would rather have the organs and stained glass windows or, or the 20 minutes of singing on a Sunday because that's so easy. And God's way of worship is not easy, is it? In one sense, it costs nothing to be a Christian. We become God's people because of God's sheer mercy. It's a free gift to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you look at Romans 12 and, well... It costs everything to be a Christian, doesn't it? In view of God's mercy, God does not want an hour on Sundays. He doesn't want to be squeezed in as a last priority after your job and your family and your game of bowls. God wants your, hour of Sunday, your one hour on Sunday plus every other hour, every other day. God wants you, all of you, devoted to him all the time, serving and loving his people, standing out for good in this world, not easy but it is what God deserves isn't it I mean when you really think about it when you realise what he's done for us in Jesus how could we give God anything less than everything I don't think we can that is the worship God deserves and so I say let's, let's stop with the excuses and let's do it Why don't we pray? Our merciful and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that while we were sinners, you gave Jesus to die on the cross in our place. We thank you that he has paid the full price for our sin 
And now when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are put right with you as a free gift. We thank you that now we have peace with you and we stand firm in the sure hope of glory. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy and we pray that now in view of your mercy, you will change our minds. You help us to want to live your way. Please work in us by your spirit and give us the power to live for you each day, every day, all day, in all that we do. Our Father, fill us with enthusiasm, fill us with love, fill us with patience and care. Please help us to stand out as Christians in our love for each other and in our godly and right relationship with this world. We ask this because, because you are worth it and because by the power of your spirit you enable us to live your way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.